Man, we are so blessed here at the church. We God has been training up uh, guys and and sending us guys that that are incredibly gifted. As you know, uh, we've had three of our pastors go out this last year. Um, uh, one on the mission field, Pastor Rod went back on the mission field to Italy, and we had uh, Pastor Scott and Pastor Kyle uh, both I individually go to Tennessee um, to plant churches there. So we got two churches getting planted in Tennessee. And, you know, what we've been enjoying in this season is that God is raising up some incredibly gifted men, and he's sending them to us. And so we're embracing what God is doing, because God's training guys up not only uh, to fill, fill the void and to provide, um, you know, here at the church uh, with their gifts, with their talents, with their calling, but also uh, we sense that God is training guys up for us to send out, to plant more churches, to send missionaries on the mission field and so on. And so I want you to welcome up uh, Sam Morgan. Uh, Sam is a member of our church. And uh, <clears throat> you've seen Sam probably behind the drum kit. He, uh, he serves on our worship team. I first met Sam at, at the Bible college when I was teaching a homiletics class. Homiletics is the science and art of biblical preaching. And at the end of the class, uh, I, uh, I had as 60% of the grade, don't you hate teachers like that? 60% of the grade was their final exam where they would preach a message because that's what the class was all about. Um, Sam blew me away. God has gifted. This guy can preach, man. And, um, and so I, told, I pulled him aside after the class, and uh, I said, look, uh, I'm giving you 100% on your final, and I'm, and I'm just saying, I don't know what God's doing in your life, but if preaching isn't a part of it, you need to reconsider. You really need to pray about making preaching a part of your life. So Sam's a graduate of the Bible College. He's, he's currently uh, working on, on his master's in seminary. Um, he uh, was an intern, <clears throat> excuse me, he was an intern with Pastor Rod Thompson for, for several years. Um, he's married to his wife, Delaney, for three years. They have a one-year-old daughter, Haven, and, uh, and I've invited Sam to preach today. You're going to find out is how gifted this guy is, and I should be afraid of my job. So, uh, <laughs> dude, drive it like you stole it, man. Thank you, Pastor Ted. Reliance Church, how are we doing this morning? Good. It's a pleasure, it's a joy to bring God's word. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are making their way down the aisles. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and they'd love to get one to you. While you're turning there, the, books of, the book of Exodus has often been called the gospel in the Old Testament. And that's because the narrative of this book foreshadows our individual stories as followers of Jesus, and so here in chapter 19, in God's dealing with the nation of Israel, we actually get this stunning portrait of what it looks like to live a holistic Christian life. And so it's on the screens, to live a holistic Christian life, our lives are to be marked by, one, gospel centrality, two, joyful obedience, and three, missional living. And so we're gonna see that through three movements in our text today. If you're still turning there, let me catch you up to where we are in the context of Exodus. The people of Israel have finally been freed from slavery in Egypt, and we saw that God has set them free with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. And now they're walking through the wilderness, and we can see that God is among them. They've got bread coming from the sky. They've got water coming from rocks. They've got their enemies being defeated and they have leaders being assembled. 
And as they are journeying through the wilderness, we are not just seeing a story of a group of Israelites. We are seeing our story as the people of God. You are seeing this church's journey, whether here in Temecula, California, or in Mumbai, India, or Beijing, China, you're seeing a glimpse of what it means to be the people of God brought out of slavery and into freedom with God, with him. And like Israel, we too are redeemed and on mission for God's purposes, with God's promises as we are barreling forward into a glorious future together, amen? And so Israel's story is ours too. And if you're there, let's pick up in chapter 19, verse one. This is God's word. It says, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped before the mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a a special treasure above all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. If you like to take church uh, notes in church, I'm tagging this message, Swaggerless Christianity. Swaggerless Christianity. And by way of introduction, I have to admit something to you this morning, Reliance Church. It's this. I am what I would like to call an avid indoorsman. That is, I don't really hunt, I don't really camp, and it, trust me, it's not because I have anything against these things, I can see how people find joy in them, but I think just for me, I am built for the common graces of air conditioning, Wi-Fi, and hot showers. Can I get an amen? But one thing I do enjoy, and I know this doesn't count at all, but I do enjoy the beach. And when I go to the beach and I'm walking along the sand with my daughter Haven, I can't help but think of that poem, Footprints in the Sand. How many of you know that short story, Footprints in the Sand? If you don't, I'm gonna read it to you real quick. Here it is. One night, a man had a dream. He had a dream he was walking along the beach with the Lord. And across the sky flashed scenes from his life. And for each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. But when the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand and he noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that this happened at the very lowest and saddest times of his life. And this really bothered him, so he questioned the Lord. He said, Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during the most troublesome times of my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't understand why when I needed you most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, my son, my precious child, I love you and I'd never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints in the sand, it was then that I carried you. We like that, don't we? Church, I'm here to tell you this morning that that is so close to being the encouragement that you actually need for your life. So when, when things are good, I don't need him. When things are okay, I don't need God's help. 
He only carries me during the difficulties? No, this is why one of my favorite Christian authors, Jared Wilson, he he rewrites this story and he changes the ending. And so the man complains, Lord, how come there is only one set of footprints in the sand? Jared changes it so the Lord replies, my child, there has only ever been one set of footprints in the sand because your sorry behind always needed to be carried. Listen, church, that's encouraging because that is Christianity. Just as the Lord tells the Israelites in verse four, I bore you on eagles' wings. As they're journeying out of Egypt and through the wilderness, God is carrying them, and so we need to be reminded that God is carrying us. Which brings us to the first movement of the text we'll see, number one, if you're taking notes, a restoring of their past a restoring of their past. Now, did God set the Israelites free just to pile drive Pharaoh in Egypt? No, he set them free for himself. Look again at verse four. God says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Come on guys, you you saw what I did to Pharaoh at the Red Sea. You saw my power and my mercy. But look at what else he says. How I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. They were redeemed for him. Next, God will go on to say, to be my possession, to be my people. Now, why eagle's wings? Why not pigeon's wings? Why not dove's wings? Why an eagle? Because an eagle is dangerous. An eagle is a predator, an attacker. That's why it doesn't say, I bore you on seagull's wings. Because seagulls are annoying. But when God says, I carried you on eagle's wings, he's saying, listen, I'm your protector and I can harm anyone who gets in your way and I showed you that in Egypt. I am both fierce and friendly to my people. It reminds me of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Um, In the book, there's rumors that Aslan is on the move, right? And so we know that Christ, or Aslan is a picture of Christ. And so Lucy asks the beavers at one point, she says, is this Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, he says, oh, he's certainly not safe, but he is good. And so God is saying, I carried you. You you did not strut out of Egypt under your own power. And he's saying the very same thing to us. None of us strutted out of our own sins. You did not exert any power over your own rebellion to God. No, he lifted you out and he carried you. I told you about my daughter, Haven. At this stage in her life, it is quite apparent to me who she prefers over me and my mom, who who is her favorite. It's her mom. And I'm not bothered by this. She's got good reasons to love her mom. But we'll be out, out and about at times, spending time as a family. And there's times when Haven just wants to be carried by mom. And so what will my wife do? She will carry her. And she will carry her the rest of the day until we get to the car, and and research has shown that babies get 100% heavier when they fall asleep in your arms. Can I get an amen from the moms? And so she will carry her daughter, who is magically turned into a bag of mulch, until we get back to the car at the end of the day. Why does she carry her? She carries her because she loves her. And listen, this is what the grace of God does for you. He carries you. The Bible is reminding us that we did not do anything for ourselves. We had no part in our being carried out of slavery to sin. And listen, when we truly understand the grace of God, it de-swaggerizes us. 
All the ways that you and I think we're so great, we're so godly, we are some spiritual elite class of Christian. No, grace de-swaggerizes you. See, friends, Jesus carries us on eagle's wings because he carried our sins to the cross and he paid for them in full with his perfect life. And then he went to the tomb as his body became a lifeless corpse and they wrapped his body in burial linens and your sins were wrapped up in there with him. And when Jesus' lungs filled back up on Easter morning and he walked out of that tomb and he took off those burial linens, your sins were left tucked in the creases forever. And Jesus rose from that tomb with your purchased life, carrying you forever. See, Jesus carries you from beginning to end and the gospel takes you all the way home. Listen, church, Christianity is really just a coattails religion. I'm sure you've probably heard that from skeptics and, Chris, and critics of Christianity. You've probably heard them say those Christians, they're just riding that guy Jesus' coattails. Absolutely. We are riding Jesus' coattails all the way into glory. He is carrying us all the way, grace upon grace, amen? Look with me again at verse four. This is why the Lord says, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. See, the destination of the Exodus isn't really the promised land. Listen, that's a blessing, but it's not final. The destination of the Exodus is God himself. And so is your conversion. Listen, the end goal of your Christian life is just not just getting to heaven. Heaven isn't heaven because of its geography. Heaven is heaven because God is there. And our hearts need reminding that God has done all the heavy lifting to make this possible. We've done nothing. We have done nothing to receive this, but just receive and respond in repentance and faith. Grace de-swaggerizes us. Church, we are flying on the wings of grace. And this has massive implications on us as believers, doesn't it? See, this gospel, the person and work of Jesus, is what defines us, and it's what we are to orbit our lives around. It's the song that never wears out and never gets old. Romans 1.16 says that it is spiritual dynamite. Not anything else in all creation, not the sun, not supernovas, not anything. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God because it has the power to reshape us at the deepest levels of our affections. Not only is it the most powerful truth in all, in all of existence, it is like a healing balm that heals every one of our wounds and failures and disappointments. The Apostle Peter says it's the mystery that angels desire to look into. That is, it is infinitely profound and deep and amazing. It's been said that the gospel is shallow enough for a child to play in and yet deep enough for the brightest minds in the world to never be able to plummet's depths. This is the central message of the entire Bible. It's all about Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself, after he rose from the dead, if you remember, he was on the road to Emmaus and he meets up with two guys. And in Luke 24, it says this, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, talking about the Old Testament scriptures, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Even Jesus knew that the Bible was all pointing to him. See, at the center of the Christian faith is not just an idea or a key principle or an ethic or an instruction, but a historical person. 
And it's not just good advice for how you can achieve your best life now or the greatest version of yourself by following some religious steps or moral principles. No, the gospel is not good news because it is a lofty goal to attain. It is good news because it is literally a down-to-earth reality that we can rest in. And so the gospel must remain central in our lives and it must operate as the lens through which we see and make sense of everything in our lives. And yet how often do we find ourselves trying to move on as if the gospel was good enough to get us saved, but now we need to move on to the quote unquote deeper things of God, whatever that means. That the gospel is just the invitation the pastor gives at the end of his message and I've already accepted that so now I can just move on and tune it out. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse one he says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is saying that this message of Jesus that once changed your life, it is still changing you, and it has the power to change every area of of your life if you will let it. And so church, this means that we never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is not just the ABCs of your Christian life, it is the A through Z. And so the question for you today might be this, listen, what areas of your life do you struggle to give up control over and rest in what the finished work of Christ has done for you? Maybe you're coming into 2020 and you're feeling inadequate. You're feeling inadequate as a spouse, as a parent, as a Christian. Maybe you've allowed your identity to be wrapped up in what you do, what you have, what others say about you. Maybe you've believed the lie that you are nothing more than your worst moment or nothing less than your greatest accomplishment. And listen, you can't just simply try harder or do better. That will only push you in one of two directions, arrogance or despair. But listen, in Christ resting in his grace, we can finally breathe again because now these aren't the goal Jesus is. Now none of these things define us and Jesus does. So listen, for you this morning, does this new year carry with it New fears, new anxieties, insecurities, uncertainties, burdens. You feel like you can barely keep your head above water? Keep preaching this gospel to yourself. Let this be the defining narrative of your life as opposed to every other story being preached to you by our culture, by social media, by the major news outlets, even the lie that you tell yourself. Dr. Paul David Tripp, he says that no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself. And so we need to constantly be restoring ourselves in the hope that we have in Jesus and in the in-between that he is present in our every moment. And he is carrying us all the way now and millennia into eternity. Because listen, he's a God who finishes what he starts. Listen, he's not done with you. He's not done with your marriage. He's still working on your kids. He is still changing you. And the cross proves the length to which he was willing to go because of his great love and care for you. Tim Keller says this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. So first we see that God restores them in the past, what God has brought them out of and what he's bringing them to 
And now we see, secondly, a renewing of their covenant. A renewing of their covenant. Now, God renews this covenant with Israel for two reasons we're going to look at. First, it's to reveal his character. To reveal his character. Notice verse 5 again. Israel's position as the treasured possession of God is dependent upon their obedience. God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Well, how are they to keep God's covenant? the Ten Commandments. In the next chapter, in chapter 20, God is going to give them the terms by which they are to live in obedience to him. One commentator I read on this passage, he said that the Ten Commandments are a window into the Lord's heart. I love that. There's something about each one of these laws that discloses to us what God is actually like. They reveal what God most deeply cares about. Think about your family or the business that you work for. If it's a healthy family or a healthy business, there are rules and restrictions, right? And the heart behind those restrictions is not to simply keep you from doing things, but to help you to embody the character of that family or business. And by complying with these rules, you are reenacting the values that they hold. And yes, sometimes these rules seem ridiculous. Listen, when I was a little kid, I thought it was ridiculous. I had to hold my parents' hand across the street but were my parents just trying to restrict me? No, they didn't want me to get run over. They were for my well-being and my safety. And so when God says to Israel, do these things to keep my covenant, it's not a threat, it's a promise. It's not just an obligation, it's an invitation. See, God is inviting Israel to be transformed from slaves into priests. See, the intention of the Ten Commandments is to teach God's people how to be fully human once again, to live free and full lives that put his character and his kindness on display for the entire world to see. Listen, these were the kind of lives that we were intended to live in the garden. And so this is really just a a recovery of true humanity, true calling, true mission in the world. Now listen, if God just gave Israel the Ten Commandments, it would be really easy for us to say that all God is after is our begrudging submission and he just wants to restrict our lives. That he's just some cosmic cop in the sky who's ready to to smite you for your insubordination. But nothing could be further from the truth. Notice that the story of Exodus doesn't begin with God coming down to to the Israelites and saying, hey, if you guys will just obey me, I'll rescue you. No, the story of the Exodus is God saying, because I have already rescued you from Egypt, I'm calling you, I'm inviting you to obey my commands. This is an invitation into the good life to have true relationship with God, to have true relationship with others. Now we are called to live free and full lives, to be fully human once again. Obeying God will not add to anything that he has paid for in full on the cross, but as Dallas Willard famously put it, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Now from the, from the position of grace that God has worked in us, we work out our salvation in light of our calling to put the character of God on display, to show the world that God's laws aren't restrictive, they're freeing. Why? Because they, they give us the proper guardrails for the abundant life that Jesus promised us, a life of true flourishing. In fact, the psalmist repeatedly tells us that we can delight in God's law, why? Because we know it's for our freedom. 
Psalm 16 says that the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You make known to me the path of life. And so for you this year, are you going to receive and trust God's word to transform you? Or are you going to allow its limit in your life? The Israelites were technically not slaves anymore positionally, but the problem was that they still were hanging on to their slave mentality, carrying it out into the desert. God brought Israel out of Egypt, but now he's brought them into the wilderness to get Egypt out of Israel. And so it's true with us that Christ in the gospel, he's freed us from the penalty of sin, but there are still, there are still caverns in our own heart that have yet to find freedom from the power of sin. If I can be honest with you this morning, I know there are categories of my own heart that have yet to surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And listen, only you can know for yourself what that is. But the primary way that God is going to transform you is by his word through the empowerment of the spirit. That's why Paul in Ephesians, he calls it the sword of the spirit. Because God uses his word as a tool to cut us in order to heal us. Not in the way that a butcher cuts meat, but in the way that a surgeon operates on the human body. It's strategic. It's for the overall well-being of the patient. If you want to think about it this way, listen, God, when he uses his word in our lives, it's not just to rearrange the furniture of your heart. You don't just need sprucing up. No, what does God do? He goes chip gains on that thing. He demos it. And he, he affects every part. No, there's not a single part of you that will remain untouched because he wants to inhabit every fiber of your being. Again, this is not by motivation of the law as if God's love is contingent upon how well we perform for him. We don't hold up our religious activity to God and say, God, okay, accept me now because of this. That is only the result of, of one of three things, fear, pride, or guilt. Fear says this, obey God because you don't want him to be upset with you. Pride says, obey God because you know it's gonna make you feel better about yourself. Guilt says, obey God because you know you really should. And all that will ever do is simply rearrange the furniture of your heart, but it doesn't have the power to change you. But if the gospel is the root, joyful obedience will be the fruit. And we can joyfully, joyfully obey his word because he's given us everything we need for life and godliness in it, amen? Not only did God make this covenant to reveal his character, but to reveal their calling, to reveal their calling. As we've said, the people of Israel, they have just come out of hundreds of years of slavery in bondage to Egypt. Can you just imagine the physical, the emotional, the psychological trauma that this would involve? They are wounded, they are scared, they are confused, and as a result, they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten what it means to be the, the descendants of Abraham, the people of Yahweh, the worshipers of the one true God. And so here at Mount Sinai, it's not as if God is just saying, that's not who you are anymore. God's brought them to tell them, this is who you are. This is your story, I am your God. You are my people and you are my treasure. You are my treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
And it's significant for us as believers because we too know that we were drawn out of bondage to sin and death, but we haven't just been saved from what we once were. We've been called to be new creations in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Titus chapter two that Jesus gave himself for us in our place. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Listen, that's Exodus 19 language. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be bought with Jesus' blood. You're not your own anymore. You belong to Jesus. His blood was the payment for you. You are the personal treasure of God himself, and it's not because you're awesome. It's not because you're deserving. It's not because you made the varsity team. It's because God has decided to place his love and affections on you. And because Israel has been declared the possession of God, now, here's the beautiful thing, they don't need to be defined by their past as slaves because God has given them a new identity in him. A new identity in him and therefore a purpose for their lives. I just read to you Titus chapter two where Paul says Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And here in Exodus 19, God says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not just a few in the priesthood. Yeah, they're gonna have Aaron and Levi who were marked out um, to go into the temple and to offer sacrifices. But God is saying, I want all of you. I want the whole nation to have the posture and ministry of priests in the world. And look at me this morning, so do you. We've been called to be spiritual priests, to be carriers of the presence of God in every sphere and space that we inhabit. And so this means that you are to be a knowledgeable Home Depot worker. You are to be a kind and hardworking barista. You are to be an honest and upright electrician. Whatever your occupation is, God has called you to be the fragrance of Christ with all that you come in contact with. The late British missiologist Leslie Newbegin said this. He said, living missionally is not an added extra. It is an acid test of whether or not the church believes the gospel. That by which the church receives its existence is that by which it is also given its mission. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so also am I sending you. When the church ceases to be missional, it contradicts its own nature. You might know this next guy, Pastor Ted Leavenworth said this. He said, we can't participate in what it truly means to be in Christ without also participating in his mission to the world. Churches have mission statements, right? If you go to a church website, they say, this is our mission. And I'm not dogging that at all. But I wonder, does, does the church have a mission or does God's mission have a church because God has formed the people of reliance here and he has strategically placed us in order that we would be a Jesus people for the sake of the world. And like the Israelites in the book of Exodus, there is no point of arrival as if we've made it. Listen, in a sense, this church will always be roaming in the wilderness. We will always be roaming forward on mission, upstream against the tide of the world, holding to this supernatural book and refusing to stop talking about a man from Nazareth who wouldn't stay dead back in the first century. Listen, this is your life now. This is our collective ministry. We've all been employed to work for the king. 
Our world is crumbling right now and the Bible says that the church is to be the pillar and support of the truth of the gospel. And listen, this doesn't require that you have every answer. This doesn't require that you have a seminary degree first. This doesn't mean you need to be ordained first. This doesn't even mean that you need to be a Christian for a few years first. In verse one of our text, it says that the Israelites have been redeemed for three months. So if you've been redeemed, if you've been saved for three months, three years, 30 years, it doesn't matter. We have no excuses. We've been called to this ministry by God. And listen, we will all do this in different ways. Some of you are gonna do this in the workplace. In a church our size, I'm sure there's gonna be a couple of you who go to unreached people groups. Some of you are gonna do this on your neighbor's couch over a cup of coffee. But hear me, Jesus died to make you a missionary. And I don't just mean the kind that go overseas and sell everything they have. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, every Christian is a missionary or he is an imposter. Listen, whatever you believe God has called you to do in your life, your goals and your plans, it has to include this. It's got to include this because you have been redeemed to make the Redeemer known. You have been saved to make salvation known. This is part of the covenant that God makes with his people and it's what he expects of our lives. And so thirdly and finally this morning in closing, three, a recommitment to his people a recommitment to his people. And so God has called Israel to Mount Sinai, but the Israelites know they would have to radically change their lives if they were going to live in the presence of a holy God. And the rest of the narrative here in chapter 19 describes Moses explaining to the people how exactly God expects them to live in his presence. Why? Because God is holy. He's set apart. He's not like us. He's totally other. God tells Moses, make all these preparations, have the people consecrated, block the people off from the mountain. Don't let them come up. This is serious stuff. And we'll see later on, and if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that despite these preparations, despite God inviting Israel into covenant relationship, Israel fails to meet these expectations. They can't keep up their end of the bargain. Later on, a whole generation gets wiped out because of their rebellion against God. At one point, the earth swallows up a bunch of people because they disobey God's word. And king after king raise up idols and break the Ten Commandments. And so if God's relationship with his people hinges on the careful keeping of the covenant, they're sunk from the start. They don't keep it. And listen, church family, neither do we. None of us have perfectly kept the law of God, and so how do we get to be called the special treasure of God? How do we get to be a kingdom of priests? Well, the whole Old Testament is, is, is the point that, that God knew that we could never measure up. This is the whole point. God knew that we could never make the grade, and we could never meet his righteous standard. And so the whole point of the Old Testament is pointing to our great need to be rescued, to be saved. God can't just sweep our sin under the carpet and forget about it because he's holy. Sin cannot reside in his presence. It's gotta be paid for fully and completely. And so Jesus kept the law for you. He kept the covenant for you and then he died the death that you deserve, the death that, that he didn't deserve 
but the death of a criminal on a cross, and he bore every one of your sins, past, present, and future, in your place for you. And this is why the Bible says that whoever believes in Christ, who puts their full faith and trust in what he has accomplished alone, in exchange, he gives you all of his righteousness as if you were the one to perfectly keep the law. See, the only way we get to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation is if we belong to Christ. Look with me at verse 16 of Exodus 19. What happens? The holy wrath of God is manifested. It says in verse, in verse 16, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. They're terrified of the holiness of God. Verse 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on top of the mountain and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. God tells Moses, listen, don't let anyone come up. Don't let anyone come up and and Moses says, all right, God, I'll, I'll build a fence. And God says, no, people jump fences. Tell them again. Don't come up, they will deserve death because of my holiness. See friends, on the cross, Jesus took all of the quaking wrath of God here on Mount Sinai and he placed it on himself. This is why he sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane before the cross because the the violent quaking wrath of Mount Sinai lands on Christ. God doesn't just give up on Israel because of their failings. Over and over again, what does he do? He recommits himself to them. And God has committed himself to us forever because Christ has made the way. We can go into his presence. We don't need Moses to be our mediator. Jesus is the greater mediator. He is the true and better Moses. He has stood in the gap for us to bring us back to God forever so that we can be his personal treasure. And listen, Jesus doesn't just bring us to Mount Sinai. No, Jesus brings us somewhere far greater. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus brings us to Mount Zion. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble in fear. This is speaking of Exodus 19 here at Mount Sinai. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festive gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, Jesus doesn't just bring you to Mount Zion where it's doom and gloom. No, Jesus brings you to the city of the living God. Why? Because he kept the perfect law for you in place of you 
so that he could place it on you. Jesus saved you from himself, by himself, through himself, to himself, and for himself, and his mission in the world. And so listen, for us this morning, it would be wise of us every once in a while to look down and to notice that there has only ever been one set of footprints in the sand because he is carrying us all the way home, amen?